This episode is sponsored by Hire.com. Hire.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal and accounting and tax support. And they'll give you $2,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $4,000 instead. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Freelancer Show. If you're someone who runs your own service-based business, then spending less time on pesky admin tasks means having more time to focus on your client's work, which is why you need to give FreshBooks a try. FreshBooks is the invoicing solution that makes it incredibly simple to create and send invoices, track your time, and manage your expenses. It allows you to quickly see and track the status of your invoices, expenses, and projects, and allows you to keep track of your expense receipts in FreshBooks. For your free 30-day trial, go to freshbooks.com slash freelancers and enter the freelancer show in the how did you hear about us section when signing up. This episode is sponsored by nerd.us. Do you wish that somebody else would handle all of those operation details when it comes to hosting your client's web applications? Nerd.us is a Ruby on Rails managed hosting designed to make your life easy. They migrate everything for you and new signups or referrals come with a $100 discount or referral fee. To sign up, go to freelancershow.com slash nerd. That's freelancershow.com slash N-I-R-D. And enter Freelancer into the contact form for a discount. This week's episode of the Freelancer Show is brought to you by Earth Class Mail. Earth Class Mail moves your stale mail into the cloud, giving you instant access 24-7 and integrates with the tools and services you use every day. It's crazy that we've moved everything we do for the business over to the digital world, but still need to pick up, sort, and manage physical mail. With Earth Class Mail, you can get all of your mail scanned and accessible online 24-7. You can search your mail, send invoices over to your accounting software, sync important documents into cloud storage, deposit checks, and really just make running your business a whole lot easier. You also get real professional address to share publicly with customers, business partners, and investors. And you'll never need to worry about someone showing up at your door if you run your business from home. Visit freelancershow.com slash mail and you'll get your first month of service free when you sign up. That's freelancershow.com slash mail. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 187 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Philip Morgan. Hey, hey. Ruben Lerner. Hi, everyone. Jonathan Stark. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Go check out Freelancer or freelancermotecom.com, online conference for freelancers. Some of these gentlemen will be speaking. I think all of you are speaking. This week, we're going to be talking about uh, starting out as a freelancer. Now, there's a question in the GitHub repository that we have set up for this. If you want to leave us suggestions, you can. Uh, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. But basically, let me go ahead and read through this. It's it's a little bit long, but I think it kind of sets things up neatly for where Luca... I talked to Luca a couple weeks ago, where he's coming from. So he says an ep- he wants an episode on how to start out as a freelancer without already having standing in your chosen niche. Take myself as an example. I am an engineer who has worked as an employed consultant, not a freelancer, in many different companies in many different roles, specification, development, testing. However, I would like to offer consulting services which focus on improving quality through better process and tool use, be that through software design, implementation, or testing. I know I have good knowledge on these topics, and having worked with many clients, I know there is a real need for what I want to offer. However, I never officially worked on process issues, so I'm not recognized in this field, have no reputation or references, and fewer contacts than if I had been a freelancer for a while and just wanted to enter a different field. Let's ignore the legalities around this, like taxes, perhaps founding a company, etc. Instead, let's concentrate on the very foundation. How do I find my first clients? 
problems. I have no references. I'm utterly unknown. I certainly have no following, neither on Twitter nor a blog or something else. I've not had any clients, and I'm not able to cite past experience. I don't have any money or time to spare for experiments. So whatever marketing approaches I attempt have to have at least a good probability of success unless they are cheap and quick. So the questions are, how do I get noticed? I've started a blog, but not even my mom reads it at this point. How can I convince a client to try me out even though I'm apparently a total noob in this field? I face some competition in my chosen field, but I think my focus is narrow enough and the market huge enough that it isn't really a problem. How do I deal with the fact that there are more experienced competition? Is there a way to turn the situation into an advantage for me? How can I distinguish imposter syndrome from actual gaps in my knowledge and experience? And Philip says he has the answer, so I want to hear it. Crickets. (laughs) (laughs) I've thought. No pressure. No pressure. (laughs) Yeah, right. Okay, so let's not say the answer. Let's say unanswer. I thought through this because I I deal with this situation a lot. I have a a very small mentoring program, five people at a time usually, and they're they're facing something very similar, which is they're kind of trying to bootstrap a marketing program of some sort to support a new position, which is rather like starting over. It's not quite as uh, severe as the situation that Luke is depicting, but it's pretty close. So here's what I recommend. And I'm just going to blaze through this list that has like about 15 or 16 items on it. And then, you know, whatever we can discuss. But so here's here's what I think is the right things to do in the right order. The first is to work on your mindset and think of yourself as an investor in your own business. What you have to invest is your current skills and any other skills you could easily acquire and your time. I think it's critical to think about it this way because if you limit yourself to just the skills you have today and you're not willing to acquire new skills, you, I think, are going to sort of uh, limit your potential. The next thing is to interview potential clients and try to figure out what we refer to in these parts as an expensive problem, a problem that's painful, urgent, or will result in a significant return on investment if it's solved or a significant savings if it's solved. And it's easier than you think to do that. There's a book called Lean Customer Development by Cindy Alvarez that teaches you how to do that. I recommend reading that book. So you develop a hypothesis about what you think the problem that you can solve is. You develop a positioning statement around that problem. And then you build what I call a lead magnet, which is a piece of content, either an email course or some kind of you know, PDF download, something like that. Find some way to get or adapt some social proof, people, other people, people who are not you, (laughs) saying that you can solve this problem. Build a one-page microsite with a strong headline, a prominent opt-in for the lead magnet, and the social proof that you've collected. So I know getting that social proof is like, I'm just kind of waving my hands and saying, do that, and it's not that easy. But What I think is important is to have a website where you're not saying me, I, blah, blah, blah. And instead, the website is is third parties validating that you can solve this problem. Build a landing page for your lead magnet. Get a domain name that redirects to that landing page. Make the domain name easy to pronounce and easy to remember. Build a couple articles. So this, this whole approach you'll notice is centered around content marketing and positioning. There's probably other ways to do it but maybe build about a month's worth of articles, set up an email list so that when people opt in to download your lead magnet, they get on your list and then they start hearing from you every week with content that demonstrates your ability to solve the problem that we referenced earlier. 
and then get out there in the world and start teaching or going on forums and responding to people who have this problem, point them back to your lead magnet and just take it from there. This takes a lot of upfront work before you can bill your first client, but I think it's the most efficient, effective way to bootstrap from essentially nothing. I think so, there's probably some holes in it vis-a-vis what, uh, what the original question, but that's how I would approach it. So my, my quick question to this is, because I know people are going, well, okay, so I'll just quit my job tomorrow and go do this. But how much runway should they take or, you know, how long does it take you to implement all this stuff before you can really realistically expect to be finding clients? It, that depends. In I've seen anywhere from three months at sort of the very fastest to uh, there's some people who n- never get it done, to be frank. But I, I would say a safer amount of runway is six to 12 months. That's such an important thing to say because people so often, I, I, I agree with what Chuck said. So many people say, I want to be a freelancer. I'll do consulting. I have such great technical knowledge, and they probably do. And then they're sort of like, uh-oh, now what? <laughs> right? Like, where do I get clients? And the fact is, it takes time to build this reputation. And I think, Philip, your, your suggestions are great. And and the one that really struck me was then going online and answering people's questions, right? Because that's going to have feedback into everything. It's going to give you more social proof. It's going to get your name out. And someone somewhere is going to say, wow, you gave me such great help online. I'd love to hire you to help me and my company. But it'll take time. Yeah. I do also want to kind of come at this from a different angle. And this is something that I explain to people as how to scramble. Uh, so some people will be able to do this in their spare time while they hold down a full-time job so that they can kind of get some traction before they're out on their own. And then they can get that first client and they can move along to freelancing full-time. Uh, however, some people, they're like, I want to try freelancing and I got laid off last week. So if that's the case for you, then I usually tell people that you need to start doing what Philip basically outlined so that you can have clients three, six months down the, down the road and, you know, be very intentional and deliberate about it. However, also make sure that you are going to all of the places that your potential customers and or their employees, people who will recognize the problem that you are going to solve. Uh, are going to be. So for example, users groups or different meetups. We have a meetup here called LaunchUp, which is entrepreneurs and small businesses that are startups. Uh, So if that's your niche, then go to that. If you're looking to consult with enterprises, then figure out where the enterprises are and see if there's a way in. You know, So you go meet people, you get to know them, and then you figure out how to get them to notice that you can solve their problem, and you may be able to find a client very quickly that way. But... That's usually something I suggest when you have no prospects and no job. You know, one, one of the interesting things that I did and I see a lot of other people do in the, in the world of freelancing is they think of their business as an extension of their sort of self-identity and, and that's usually their skills and their experience. Mm-hmm. And what they failed to t- or what I failed to take into account is what kind of clients do you have access to? Because those are the easiest ones to sell your services to is those that you have some form of access to. And what are their problems? So I guess what I'm saying is that the thing that I did that held me back for many years was I just thought about things too much from my own perspective and not enough from my client's perspective. Yeah, and that makes sense. It's funny because for me, it matters a whole lot more who I work with than necessarily what I'm doing. 
And so if I can find people I like to work with, and then I can find a common expensive problem, that is a much better approach for me because then I know that I'm going to be solving problems for people that I want to work with. I, I think it's also important to point out, like we're talking about in, in many ways, two different situations here. One is I'm interested in moving my career forward and doing freelancing, but I have a full-time job now. And so I have some runway to plan and think and do things. The other is, oh, my God, I've been laid off or my company closed or whatever, and I've got to do it right away. And it's very nice for us to talk about, you know, finding high value clients and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, like if you have to get work <laughs> and you need the money, I, I think it's OK to take you know, what, what people sometimes call a staff augmentation job, meaning a contracting job, a development job with a company where you're filling in for you know, a staff member. But it will put money on the table and it'll allow you to move forward in a lot of these things, too. Yeah, I know in particular that uh, Luca has a job and is looking to leave it within the next three to six months is what he wants to do. So, and, and we hope that his bosses are not listening. <laughs> I kind of doubt it. But, but uh, specifically, yeah, that that's the situation he's in. Philip, you mentioned sending out a newsletter every week and, and you know maybe having a few articles on your webpage. So do you need a blog? Is it a good idea? Is it a bad idea? Well, maybe is the answer to that question. <laughs> you need a way to increase your prospective client's trust in you before they put money on the line by hiring you. So if a blog is turns out to be the best way for you to do that, great. Uh, we were, I think you missed this, uh, Chuck, because you weren't here last week, but we went into a little bit of discussion about how that's not always the greatest, you know, the written word doesn't work so great for everybody. So sometimes there are other ways. Maybe it's uh, doing screencasts or maybe it's putting together a podcast or, I, you know, there's lots of ways. But you need a way to demonstrate that you're a good bet before somebody bets money on hiring you. And if I had thought about that five years ago or whenever it was when I started working for myself, I would have uh, made a lot fewer mistakes. <laughs> So what about social media presence? Because you mentioned that too. You, I don't have a, law, a big Twitter following. Is that something that comes along later? Because to, to me, it seems like, I mean, what you lined up is lined, outlined is basically you set up a place for people to go to find out who you are, and then you give them opportunities to hear from you a little bit more often so that they can basically decide whether or not you're the type of person that they want to hire and then you get hired. And then, you know, doing the blogging is a way of, of gaining more traffic because you get more references to your website. Social media is another way of connecting with people and then referring them back to that same website. So are all the rest of these things kind of the next layer out? Well, I'm glad you put it that way because you did not mention something that I think is almost the most important part, which is, and we kind of touched on this last week, but if so if you do all this content marketing, which lives on a site that you create, and then you do nothing to get people's eyeballs on it, if you just kind of depend on Google to do that part for you, you will be broke and unhappy for years on end, exactly how I was. <laughs> so the key realization that I had was, if I'm going to do this content marketing, that's only part of it. That's only part of it. I've got to find a way to earn traffic earn people's attention to view that content marketing, whatever it is, whether it's written articles or a podcast or a screencast series or just whatever, it doesn't matter. You have to think, how are you going to get out there and earn attention for that? And the easiest way I've found to do that is, is picking something that I know something about and teaching about it. And that doesn't come naturally for everybody, but 
I think when you start to have that mindset shift of, oh, wait, Google will, at some point down the road, Google will start sending me desirable traffic for these, you know, this content marketing I'm doing. So I've seen some people like Moishka Mars, who's been on here before, is great at it. She's great at using social media to earn attention for things like her site and her content marketing. So if that works for you, then I'd say do it, you know, and do a lot of it. But there's other ways, too. There's things like teaching or uh, I mean, of course, you can pay traffic, pay for traffic. You can buy traffic, but that doesn't do very much to get people's trustometer maxed out as quickly as possible. And that's really what you're trying to do in all of this is you're trying to increase trust. Look, I, I would say Luca also raised something else, which isn't, you know, maybe directly part of this question, but it's important to point out. He says that he's been work, he's working as a consultant as a, at a company, but as a full-time employee. And it might be really, really tempting to say, well, I've been helping my clients uh, in my current job. Maybe I can go talk to them and start working, working, working for them directly instead of through this consulting company. And I strongly advise you not to do that. It's just going to lead to, uh, I mean, worst case lawsuits, but like even best case, you're going to have a lot of very angry people and it's just not worth it. And th that will probably include clients as well as, you know, your current employer. So it's good that you're talking about finding new clients and moving out and dealing with other people because I think you're going to really want that and need that. And, and it is possible. There are a lot of clients out there to be had. Are you speaking from experience there, Reuven? <laughs> uh, you know what? No, I never actually worked for a consulting company. Um, so I never actually had to deal with that. The closest I came was when I stopped working through this training company in Israel. And I, I told them and I said, listen, you know, I'm, I'm going to stop working with you. And I was a contractor anyway, but I said, uh, you know, I'll do all the courses that I've agreed to do, but then I'm going to go back to doing things on my own like I had many years before. And the only question the head of training at the company asked me was, so what contract did we sign you on? And I said, none. She said, oh. And that was that. <laughs> <laughs> and, th and then their clients called me up and said, so can, can, can you work with us? But uh, Which was a very nice feeling and all. But if I'd been signed on a contract and or if I'd sort of aggressively gone after them, I think it would have been bad. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, this is just in my opinion, but I, I think the world gets very big when you have sort of the right intentions. And then when you try to, you know, kind of cheat your way into things, I think the world becomes very small, very fast. I totally agree with all of that. Uh, I want to add a little bit of nuance, though, which is that... Um, when I went from really almost one of my only full-time jobs to working for myself, I did bring some clients with me, but it was uh, an utterly transparent situation where I wasn't trying to fake anybody out. I had a conversation with the firm owner and we split the money and we, you know, we created a financial agreement that was beneficial to both of us. And I was able to go, you know, I was able to give myself like a year of runway with clients that I basically took from a previous employer. But I am the first to admit that's very rare, but it's not impossible. Uh, the flip side of that is if you work for like McKinsey or some big, you know, Deloitte, some really big company, and you are, you, you, first of all, you're not going to take any clients from a company like that because, well, for two reasons. One is that they won't let you do it. I'm sure you're con contractually restricted from doing that. 
And the other thing is that they, the customers do not trust you, they trust McKinsey. So in my situation, they trusted me because I was uh, pretty far up at a very small company. But if you're an employee at a large company that's still, you know, I don't know where Luca works, but if, you know, if you are working at a large company with, you know, thousands of employees, the trust that you have built up, or the trust that customers have in hiring your employer does not translate to you, even if you've been the one doing the work, because it's one of those, you know, nobody gets fired for hiring IBM type thing. You can't just leave McKinsey and think you can charge $300 an hour by hanging out at a shingle. It doesn't work like that. Yeah. I worked at a company that had a non-compete, but it wasn't the consulting company I worked for, which was kind of funny. They did charge a finder's fee, though, if a company that I had worked with decided to work with me, either as a contractor or as or by hiring me as an employee. I had an interesting conversation recently that's related to this about how, you know, assume you're in the situation where you're working for, you know, at a W-2 job for an employer and you want to go solo and you're going to start trying to validate a new business while you're still at the old one that people are often concerned about their boss finding out about it basically you know so they've like oh you've got one foot out the door eh? Uh and i think there's an so there's a there's a bit of a reluctance to put up a website but there are a bunch of things you can do to uh, kind of under the radar make that information available or, or start to create that network of prospects you know, like instead of having a website or maybe you have a landing page that's not, that doesn't have your name on it, but it has like a very clear description of your service, or your value proposition and has like a CTA, a call to action for like a webinar sign up uh, or an email list, all those things. We talked about this last week a bit, you know, like having these sort of private channels, these non, non world viewable channels where people have to opt in to receive the content. Uh, and I, I think that's an interesting approach. You know, creating sort of taking all, sort of skipping which step is it? Kind of skipping the landing page step, or at least making the landing page very anonymous in Philip's list of things to do, his 12 step program. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you start answering questions online um, in, in an area that people really are, you know, interested in, this expensive problem sort of thing, and if you invite people to join your mailing list, I have to assume the odds are really small your boss is going to join the mailing list. That said, again, it depends on the sort of the sort of relationship you have with your boss. I mean, what Jonathan described sounds amazing, where you were able to go and sit and talk rationally and nicely and basically say, let's try to make this good for everyone, clients included. Um, but you'll have to yeah, fill that, it out. That was you, my approach. Right, like, but, like, but you basically only have one chance for that to happen, right? Because like, if you yeah. get that wrong, then you're out of there and it's very bad. I want to talk about imposter syndrome. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. that was an interesting final point, wasn't it? I want to hear some stories about it from you guys is what I really want. Uh, but I think anyone, you know, I, I know some big names in the freelancing world. And I think, you know, in an unguarded moment, they will all cop to having imposter syndrome from time to time. So I think that's a good place to start is just to say that I don't know anybody who's immune from it. Actually, I think Jonathan might be a little bit, but he, he yeah. may have some stories. <laughs> Raise his hand. No, I think I'm I have part sociopath because I have such an overdeveloped sense of confidence. I, I I don't even know what people are talking about when they say imposter syndrome. Well, let me define it for you. <laughs> imposter syndrome is when you uh you don't feel like you can 
you can pull it off, whatever it is. I mean, that's probably the, the broadest definition of it. And uh, it's, I mean, it really afflicts a lot of people. I, I work with people, you know, one-on-one in a, in a mentoring thing. And uh, I just see it all the time. And it's got to be one of the number one mindset things that gets in the way of people, I think, properly marketing themselves. I think I don't have this because I've been a performing musician. So I know I'm never... There's no, like when you go on stage to play, and I'm a solo performer too. Like I've been in bands, but as a solo performer, you singer songwriter, it's a song you wrote that you're going to play all by yourself. It's pretty much hanging all the way out there. And if you can get through that, you can pretty much get through anything. So it, it, I, I suspect that it has something to do with that. Uh, it probably also has something to do with the fact that I don't, BS people. I, 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 that was too strong. I, it's not that you're BSing someone, but I just don't make claims that I don't think I can fulfill. You know what I mean? I, I just don't get where it comes from. I mean, one of the things is I, you, you sort of uh, you estimate your abilities more conservatively than they really are. I think it's part of it. It could be that, but I there's another thing that I do that could be related, which is that I don't... Uh, I never claim to know everything, it, even when I do a lot of speaking gigs. And if somebody asks me a question that stumps me, I kind of like it and I know how to respond to it. You know, I'm like, wow, that's a great question. I should probably know the answer. I will find out the answer and I will tweet it or mm-hmm. I'll put it on my on my website or whatever. And I'm sure this happens to Ruben all the time. I think we've even talked about it where yeah, yeah, you, know, I love you it. can't know everything. And in training, when somebody asks a question that stumps you, it's kind of fun. And if you're scared, if you have this sort of fear that someone's going to, you know, if like, oh, I'm an expert at this. And if someone, if I don't have the answer to some question from a client, therefore I'm not an expert and therefore I've been lying, I don't subscribe to that notion. Nobody knows everything. Even if you are a world expert, there's still going to be something that happens in a particular business case that's unusual. In fact, that's the fun part. So when that does happen, uh, instead of, I mean, I'm kind of I'm kind of assuming that's where imposter syndrome comes from, not knowing everything. And if you know, if you don't fear that, which I don't, then it's not really. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's related to it. I think it's deeper than that, though. Yeah. I mean, if if you're like we're all consultants, right? And 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 being a consultant basically means you're being paid and generally paid well to go into a company and solve problems because you have knowledge they lack. And if you go in there and you're like, well, I, th- I think I know more than they do, but I'm not sure. And then if they give you reason to doubt yourself even more, I mean, I've definitely been in situations either consulting or training where I'm like, there is no way I know more than these people. How could it possibly be they're asking me for advice? Are you kidding me? And see, it takes, I don't, that's funny because I don't see it like that. Like, like I can come in and say the exact same thing that the internal guy has been saying for two years, but you can't be a prophet in your own land. They need someone from the outside to validate the fact that this guy internally is right. So I don't, I don't see it as a knowledge thing, really. I see it as mm-hmm. more perspective thing. Yes, but... At the same time, I mean, that's where I had imposter syndrome issues as well was just going in and going, well, I don't know as much as these other people, even the people in the organization, you know, forget them, but just other consultants. It was, oh my goodness, you know, I'm, I'm so new compared to these other people. One example of this is when I first went freelance, I went and applied for a position. It was an application process for a contract. Weird enough. Anyway. I didn't know that that was weird, but I went in and 
they took me to lunch and we had a good chat and they told me about the project. And then they looked at me and they said, so what's your rate? And I looked at them cause I had no idea. And I thought, Oh, there's no way anybody bills more than a hundred dollars an hour. So I'm going to lowball it cause I am brand new. I've only been, I've only been a professional coder for a couple of years. So I, I bid them at 60 bucks an hour. Well, guess what? I got the contract. Because I underbid, underbid everybody else by half. And it was because I felt like I was really new and didn't realize that I was good enough to ask them for $125 an hour and get it. And this adds, this adds fuel to my statement that I often make that people's hourly rate is based on their ego. It is. But there were also times where I would see listings for, you know, because when I started freelancing, I just, you know, I'd go to job boards and stuff and find stuff. And I wouldn't bid on some of the jobs because I felt like they wanted too experienced a person. I, would, I wasn't qualified. Where in reality, if I had applied, I probably could have gotten those contracts in hindsight. And so I guess what I'm saying is that imposter syndrome for me isn't so much, you know, are they going to believe me or take me seriously? For me, it's my own doubts about whether or not I measure up. By the way, I had, I mean, early in my consulting career, um, I had a, a, like a very standard MO for things, which was someone would call me up, do you work in such and such? Like, do you know such and such? And the answer was always yes. And I put down the phone, order the book on such and such, read it. <laughs> and then what do you know? I'd show up and I still seem to know more than they did, which was a fantastic ego boost and definitely helped to sort of push me into trying all sorts of things. Of course, at a certain point, I realized you can't learn everything all the time. And that's when sort of, you know, positioning is very helpful. Sort of believing in yourself and believing that you can learn things as fast or faster than your clients is, is a good position to be in. But it doesn't change the fact that you can still sometimes feel like, what am I doing here? How can I possibly they're paying me, paying me for my, my advice? I think Jonathan's point is an excellent one, which is they're often not paying you just for your advice, but rather for your perspective and just to even validate what they're thinking internally. You just reminded me of a story that happened to me when I was a very little kid, which I don't think I've mentioned on the show before that could contribute to this, which is that my best friend's father, who I met in nursery school, his father graduated from college with a pharmacy degree. As soon as he graduated, he knew he was never going to be a pharmacist because he hated it. And he wanted to be an electrician. So he bought a set of electrical manuals, put them in the trunk of his car, and started taking gigs. And he would get hired to do somebody's electrical. He would go in. He would look at the problem. He would go out, open up his trunk, go through the books, figure out how to do it. And he would go in and do it. He was <laughs> totally unlicensed, unlicensed, taught himself on the fly. And I've never forgotten that. And it's probably a formative experience. And you just that your story about reading the book reminded me of that. That's awesome. <laughs> That's so funny. I mean, one of the things that you're able to do coming in from the outside with that outside perspective is, is reduce risk. And for me, I think that was very helpful to realize that, I mean, that's part of what I'm getting paid for is to reduce risk. Um, the other interesting thing that I noticed was it became a lot easier for me to feel confident when I wasn't multitasking between, you know, five or six different problem domains, but I narrowed down to just a, a relatively small problem domain that, the speed at which you build up 
you know, skills and competence and therefore confidence. If you don't just naturally have confidence, but you need to prove to yourself that you can be confident by having the skills, you know, narrowing your focus really works wonders for that in my experience. Right. There's another here to become more obviously adept at what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, I think up lists like I gave at the beginning of the show in the shower now <laughs> because I'm just like totally focused on this one problem. Wow. Yeah. And, and there's another thing that you can do that's, I mean, you guess you could think of it as a trick, but it's something that you should keep in mind if you're having this fear is that you can always give people their money back. You know, so if, if you're like, if you get into a, you know, if you basically talk your way into a situation and you're like, oh, I'll just read the book before I get there. And, you know, I'll spend more time thinking about this than anybody there does thinking about it. And 99% of the time, you're going to be right. You're going to get in there. It's going to be fine. That 1% of the time when you're like, wow, I am way out of my depth. I was basically, I can't walk the walk. Give them their money back. See, you know what? I'm, I was wrong. I'm not as good at this as I thought, or you guys are way more advanced and I can't add any value here. Let's just uh, call it a day. It's not the end of the world. Yep. So the question though was, if I can pull it up here again. Oh yeah, the question. <laughs> was when, when is it imposter syndrome and when do I actually have a gap in my knowledge? You if will you have to give someone their money back. <laughs> you will always have a gap in your knowledge. Like, you should just accept that you are never going to know everything. I mean, Jonathan said this before. Like, you will never know everything. Being an expert means knowing more than others. It's a relative measure. It doesn't mean knowing everything. And so I think a lot of it is attitude, and a lot of it is also having the resources to find things faster than others, which is also a relative measure. And when I go into my clients and they ask me a question, and I say, oh, I have to go search for that. I search for it. It takes me two minutes. And they were like, wow, we've been searching for days. Right. It's simply because I knew how to frame the question better than they did. And that, of course, makes me feel like, oh, I guess I do know more than they do. What do you know? And and what you can do is sort of build up experience doing that. If you answer questions online, if you go to user group meetings and you talk to people, right, all these different things that you can do to. Uh, so so I, I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, like some uh, uh, education theory. But so I'll bring some in here. So there's something known as social learning theory. And traditionally, we think of learning as. Before you know something, your head does not have that information. After you know something, your head has that information, right? So we can tell that you've learned by like, as it were, opening up your head and seeing what you know. And social learning theory says, no, 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 no. That's not how we measure learning. We measure learning by how central are you to a process and how many people can come to you for help. And so if a lot of people are coming to you for help, then you must know more than they do. And it's it's always a progression more and more toward the center of that community and that learning experience. And so it's always going to be that journey. But if you see that a lot of people are asking you questions and you're able to answer them, uh, you should feel pretty good about yourself and you're probably able to charge for it. I agree 100% with that. One interesting aspect of the original question we're dealing with here is not having any clients not able to cite past experience. And and I really resonate with this because uh, I've always thought that that was a big barrier, but I think there's a way around it, which is a lot easier than people think, which is uh, the internet, this thing (laughs) that lets you connect Mm -hmm. with people you don't know. And uh, I think there's tons of opportunities through the internet to just be helpful to people for free and produce meaningful results for them, which you can then use as social proof. One site that facilitates that, that I've never used myself, is called sohelpful.me, S-O-helpful.me. 
it's sort of like clarity.fm if any of you are familiar with that. Uh, but you help people for free instead of charging them. Same exact model. You kind of list your skills and your expertise. And if you don't have those, but you want to develop them, you just pretend like you have them. Not, uh, you know, egregiously so, <laughs> but, uh, you know, or just, you know, be honest and just say, hey, I'm trying to gain experience in this area. And I'm, if you want to pick my brain, I'm here. The, there's so many opportunities like that. That's just one example. And I think that's that's how you get around the I don't have clients problem is you you just get creative and you kind of bootstrap your way around it. I have an even more direct method. I, I love that method. Um, and I can think of an even more direct one if you have more time available, which is beta clients, where once you're a little bit farther down the path and you feel like you have found an expensive problem and you've picked a, you know, you've, you've maybe created at least an outline of a potential service that you would offer to people. You can reach out to a couple of clients and say, look, I'd like to deliver this service to you for free in exchange for feedback uh, on the content, thoughts about how much I should price it at. And if you like the way it went, then it'd be great if you give me a testimonial. And had great success in my coaching uh, with students doing this, where they, they take a service that they can deliver in literally a couple of hours. And, you know, and you get a, a client testimonial out, of, testimonial out of it. The client's blown away. And and they can routinely they routinely find out that the client would pay a thousand bucks for it. And it takes them you know a couple hours to do, and that's the first time, not even an optimized version of it. So if you if you do have a little bit of time available, or maybe you're in that situation where you got canned and now you're like, uh oh, what do I do? I think direct outreach is the fastest way to get up and running. And to me, the quickest way to social proof is to just do something for free for someone obviously i'm not saying do a six-month project for free but you know come up with a service that you can deliver in a few hours uh, and and get testimonials from that i really i'm gonna beat i'm gonna beat my favorite dead horse uh on this one as well and mentioned webinars um which have a combined first of all like i i use my webinars obviously as like marketing and outreach and everything but also try out new material Right. And so, and so I know it's going to be rusty. I know it's going to be so, so, but better for the free non-paying public than for paying customers. And it also then gives me a, a sense of validation that when I get email after a webinar saying, wow, that was really great. I'm like, huh, I actually get, I, I guess I do know something about the subject. What do you know? Like people are willing to spend the time and send me email and say, thank you. Um, and so if you're not sure how much you know about a subject, uh, you can learn something about it, share it with other people. Uh, again, I, I really like the webinar approach, and you may well find out that you know more than a lot of other people, and they like your approach. Plus one. Plus one. Plus one. Philip, <laughs> so you want to talk about Micronars for a few minutes? I do, but first I want to uh, just throw in a little, well, just uh, just do a mic drop here. How do I deal with the fact that there's more experienced competition? There's always going to be more experienced competition or yes. just some form of competition. Don't worry about it. Anyway, uh, I've been experimenting. Well, I've done a one-time experiment that I thought was wonderfully successful with a webinar format that is what Jonathan was uh, priming me to talk about. I call it a micronar. I'm not the person who invented that. 
uh, the person who invented that can collect royalties or whatever they want on that term. And should be shot. Uh, <laughs> but here's the idea. With, I love that uh, word. I think it's a great word. I think it's fun. It's uh, The idea is most webinars that I've been on are about 45 minutes, 50 minutes of talking, and then like five minutes of, anybody got any questions? And I wanted to flip that on its head. So I challenged myself to do a webinar where there was 15 minutes of content and then uh, like 45 minutes of discussion. And the first time I did it, I did it on Google Hangouts. And there were about 50 people who were not happy that they couldn't get on that webinar. I only advertised it to my list. And so in the future, I'll use a different platform. What I think is critical is that you can have a two-way conversation with this person asking the question. Because all of a sudden, it it's not like something you've recorded on a on a DVR or like a TiVo and you're just kind of watching something that happened in the past. It's like a really live feeling to the event. And I think it's a lot more valuable, frankly, because I think, you know, whatever idea I have can probably be compressed down into 15 minutes. And then that leaves a lot of time for discussion and nuance. And, you know, it, it's it's just incredible. I, I loved the first time I did it. and I plan to do a lot more in 2016. So if, if I think the takeaway from this is if you're thinking about doing a webinar and you're like, oh, what am I going to talk about for that length of time? Uh, just question the assumption that it needs to be 45 minutes of you talking because A, that's probably a lot less interesting than you, even you think it is <laughs> for you to drone on for 45 <laughs> minutes. And if you can make it more like a conversation, even if it's small, that can do so much to build trust in potential clients. And so but that. I think is what I have to say about the micronar at this point. How do you structure the conversation? Like, how can you be sure there will be 45 minutes of questions? Well, I'm okay if there's not. If there's not, I'm like, well, I guess that topic, I won't be doing that topic again. (laughs) (laughs) Good point. But obviously, if you kind of structure the topic so that it's somewhat controversial, I could imagine software developers doing something like, which JavaScript framework should you use? I think there would be more, plenty of questions about something like that where it's a lot more open-ended than, you know, how do you do this specific thing, whether it's just a much more open and shut kind of case. Mm. But you can't be sure. It's a little bit of a high wire act, to be honest. In doing something like this, you have to be a little bit willing to take a risk. But it's great. But flipping it around, I love this idea because yeah. flipping it around, because so, the Q&A is gold in terms of finding expensive problems and understanding the language of your customers and using their language instead of your language to talk about things and being able to, it, it just, the there's like so many great stuff. I don't even know where to start. Like it's way easier to prepare a 10 or 15 minute webinar than it is to prepare a 50 minute webinar. Like in, I'm speaking from lots of experience. I've given over a hundred of these things and and as soon as Philip described the scenario, it was instantly obvious to me that this is the way to do it. So it's easier to prepare. You get more value out of it. You can road test ideas very quickly. You get good at boiling down your message to a very short uh, sort of the, the most important pieces of it. So the 80-20 rule comes into it really strongly. And it ties into my experience doing... Like I said, I've done over a hundred like public speaking events. They're usually always an hour or longer. And I did one in my entire life. I did one of those ignite talks, which are five minutes. And you know, you have like five, uh, geez, I don't know what it is. Like, it's like you have 10 slides and they auto advance every 30 seconds or something like that. And that was the toughest oh, talk gosh. I ever. 
Yeah, it's, it was the toughest talk I ever gave. It's the one I practiced the most for, and it was the best one. I would say that's probably the best talk I ever gave, and it's five minutes long. And it's certainly the most powerful one on the subject that I've ever get, given. And so when Philip brought up this Micronar concept, I was like, oh, it's just like an Ignite talk with Q&A. It's killer. It's a great idea for people getting started because it's so easy to come up with you know, one thing to talk about. And you can have you can schedule a bunch of webinars, and if a lot of people sign up for one, hmm, you might be onto something. You know, if they're not signing up for another one, hmm, that might be something worth dropping. I just I just love this idea so much. Yeah, but uh, webinars or micronars, I still hate that name. <laughs> I, I, hate, I hated webinars when I first heard it too. So webinars I just, are terrible. Even shorter, they become piconars. <laughs> well, webinars is is seminars and web anyway. Um, anyway, so the thing is, is that, uh, you know, it's a great opportunity for people to get to know who you are on top of everything else that we've talked about. And then what happens is you can pitch them at the end. So you can say, hey, join my list and you'll get more of this stuff. Or you can, you know, funnel funnel them off to a landing page or, you know, there are any number of things that you can do where you can then build on that interaction so that they make a connection with you that lasts beyond that one evening or afternoon. And, and that's absolutely, you know, what you should be doing is, is finding some way to kind of continue the conversation. You know, you can think of it as pitching somebody or however you want, but having like a next step after any kind of teaching event is, I, I just think so important. And if that next step can be a way to start a relationship with you, you that will lead to client work m much more often than you think. Yep. And then the email list, that's the other thing I wanted to talk about, Philip, is you said you only pitched it to your email list and you had 50 people who couldn't get in. So how critical is your mailing list? I had 100 people who signed up, or 106 people signed up, but I estimate you know fewer than that were actually trying to get in. I think an email list is, I think it's super important. I think it's a, a, a very powerful asset that you can build at a very low cost. And I think it's also not 100% mandatory because that just may not be your style. But I think it's a wonderful way to scale relationship building so that instead of, you know, doing the thing that like if you look at a piece of software like Contactually, which is a really nice piece of software, they're kind of trying to change your behavior so that you're proactively checking in with prospects or leads, you know, on, a, on some kind of schedule. And I always found that hard to do, but I had a much easier time writing articles for an email list. And again, it does not have to be written content. It could be, you know, sending people a link to the latest screencast you did or a link to the latest podcast episode. So I think you should definitely consider it. Um, you know, I think Luca should consider it. And I think anybody who's uh, starting out should consider it. Every, like, successful uh, well, I won't say every successful consultant I've talked to, but a lot of people say, man, I wish I'd started building my list sooner. And um, I think the reason people don't is not so much a knowledge problem, but more of a confidence problem. And I've been there too. And I just would encourage you to, you know, push past it if you can, because I think it's a great asset to have for your business. Yep. Totally agree. That's one of the main things I'm focusing on this year. And it's just because I know so many people who, have taken the opportunity to set up an email list. They get a few to a several thousand people on it, or even a few hundred people. I know some folks, they're like, 
yeah, I have a list of 500 people, but every time they come out with something, every time they, you know, come up with a new service to sell, a new course, new training, new problem that they can solve, they pitch it to that list and that list buys it. And it's because they have that rapport and they've built that rapport through that email list. Yep. Yeah. Which- I mean, I- Boils down to trust is all I wanted to say. Absolutely. Rapport, trust, it's it's all kind of the same, you know, it's not exactly the same emotion, but it's very related. I'm going to be launching a new ebook in the coming weeks, and I've been definitely building up my list, and it's much, much, much bigger than it was when I launched my previous ebook last year. And what's amazing to me is, like, people are really interested in what I'm doing, right? And I, I, obviously, they're interested because otherwise they wouldn't be on my list, I guess, but... It's an amazing feeling, and I feel like also just the conversations I have, the email back and forth with the people who are on the list, it's fascinating for me to see what people do. It gives me ideas for how to describe things, how to work. It's really amazing feedback for me that then feeds back to them, which makes it more relevant for them. It just becomes sort of self-reinforcing, but good for everyone. And I should add, it's an amazing, amazing feeling, and I think you guys probably have it much more than I do even, like to get email from people you've never heard of around the world who are interested in what you're doing. Like it's a, a tremendous uh, sense of satisfaction. That, by the way, to reference a previous question discussion, goes a long way toward reducing the imposter syndrome. Because mm-hmm. if you have people around the world interested in what you're doing and saying, wow, I'm really learning from you, well, like <laughs> no one's paying them to do that, right? They're doing it at their own volition, and it's a great feeling. Yeah, and, and that's been my experience with the 15-minute calls that I've been doing with podcast listeners. It's I, I have learned a ton. I've got like six products that are all problems that people have that they're willing to pay for at least an ebook on and probably video series on. And they care about what I'm doing. And I have had some of the imposter syndrome. We talked a little bit about it with uh, Marcus Blankenship and some of the other things where I'm talking code, but I don't do as much code anymore. But these people, they explain to me where the value is, and it helps. It does. It helps with that imposter syndrome. All right. Anything else that we want to dig into on this one before we go to picks? I, I, I just, I just said one thing, maybe, which is, it's definitely possible. Like, you know, we are living proof that you can start from nothing and you know have a consulting business and enjoy it and be successful. And it's, it's a matter of thinking and planning, also making lots of mistakes, but like. You can definitely do it. And the fact that there are now people who think about how to help you get into freelancing and do it better, I mean, that's head and shoulders above anything that was out there when I was or when I was starting. So definitely take advantage of the information that's out there, and you can, you can totally pull it off. Yeah, I always say if a dummy like me can do it, you can do it too. <laughs> right. All right. Well, uh, let's go ahead and get to the picks. Reuven, do you have picks for us? Sure. I got a fun one for this week. I started watching a few days ago, uh, Jessica Jones on Netflix, which I'd heard about. And it's very different from any other sort of Marvel superhero show or movie you might have seen. But what I've seen so far, the episodes I've seen so far have been surprisingly intriguing. So I definitely uh, think it's, it's worth taking a look. It's not, as I said, it's very different and much grittier and, you know, language, sex, all that other stuff. Definitely not a, a, a movie my kids will be seeing anytime soon or showing my kids will be seeing anytime soon, especially my 10-year-old who's interested in superhero stuff. But uh, definitely fun to watch. And that's my pick for this week. All right. Philip, what are your picks? Two picks real quick. So I mentioned SoHelpful.me. Again, uh, I always feel weird picking stuff I haven't used myself, but I love the concept and I think that 
actually talk to the founder. <laughs> um, so it's a great service, and I think it's a great tool that people starting out can use to do what I think is uh, maybe the one or two, but the first or second most important thing they can do, which is have conversations with potential clients. There's just if there's one mistake I made, it was you know just sort of living in my head and not getting out there and talking to potential clients. And I think that any way you can sort of break out of that is good. So you might want to check out SoHelpful.me. And my second pick is an article by Brennan Dunn called How to Start a Freelancing Business That Won't Fail. It's, uh, I forget when it came out, it's kind of an oldie but goodie. It'll be linked to in the show notes, but I'm sure if you search for Brennan Dunn, uh, Start a Freelancing Business That Won't Fail, it's one of his longer articles, and it's sort of his take on the exact same question we all had thoughts on today, and I think it's definitely worth uh, worth the time to read it. So that's it for me for this week. All right, Jonathan, what are your picks? I've got a couple this week. The first is the Tim Ferriss podcast. Uh, Tim Ferriss, every, probably everybody's familiar with. Uh, he's a little bit of a cheese ball, I admit, but he does these interviews with just amazing people about the, their experience of achieving success and excellence. And, and I got to say, it's probably in terms of podcasts like that, it's reliably delivers amazing interviews. There's one in particular that I want people to listen to though, which is Derek Sivers reloaded on success habits and billionaires with perfect abs. And it's it's unusual in the sense that it's only about 30 minutes long. Usually they run over two hours. And this is just a fabulous podcast. I'll leave it at that, but you should really listen to it. Another thing that I can share which is relevant to this particular episode is a blog post I did a little while back called Eight Tips for Software Developers Starting Their Own Business. And it's basically eight things that everybody should really consider doing uh, when they're starting out. And even if you're already started out, you might want to read down it just to make sure that you've covered all your bases. And then finally, I'll say uh, I recently got addicted to Veronica Mars, <laughs> which is I don't know why I'm hooked on a teen TV show. But if you're looking for a TV show to watch, Veronica Mars is a really fun sort of tongue-in-cheek high school noir mystery type of thing. Anyway, that's real fun. Uh, but that's it for me. You know what's funny, Jonathan, is that you are not the only person of about your age, gender, and race <laughs> that I have heard say that. So I'm just I'm just saying it's it's addicting for, you know, not like you would think, you know, teenage girls. But Yeah, it's it's somehow it taps into what my high school experience was like, which I guess is not surprising. But uh I mean if if not surprising to me <laughs> if anybody knew what my high school life was like, which you don't. But anyway, it's a fun little mystery detective show that's very light and entertaining. Awesome. All right. I have just one pick. It's I'm just going to kind of ramble for a minute about CES. It was really fun, really awesome to go down there and check everything out. Um, my feeling about CES is that some of the stuff you see, if they already have it out on the market, will probably be purchased by early adopters within the next year or so. Most of the rest of that stuff is probably not going to hit mainstream markets for another three to five years. So just can't kind of keep that in mind. I know that some of the people on this show are kind of the early adopters, though. I made it through the Sands Convention Center. I didn't make it over to Las Vegas Convention Center. I just didn't have time 
because uh, I only had one day, and most of the things I wanted to see were actually at the Sands. They have all kinds of health stuff coming out. If you're familiar with the term Internet of Things, which is basically stuff that has a chip in it that communicates with a computer or phone or uh, with a cloud, uh, there were all kinds of things that connected with that, including clothing, shoes, uh, chips that you can put in your own shoes if you have, you know, so kind of an aftermarket upgrade, I guess. There were uh, all kinds of cloud storage and cloud information systems, automation this, automation that. There was a whole section of home automation. 3D printing was another big section there in robotics. So if you're interested in any of that, it's just really cool to see. You also, if you go over to Las Vegas, Las Vegas Convention Center, there's a ton of healthcare technology that's over there along with they usually have like the new models of the cars and they show you the in-console systems for those, which are also pretty awesome. So if you're into programming and you're looking for systems that have APIs, the thing that I thought was interesting was that I could walk up to most of them, including like the 3D printers and stuff, and ask them if they had an API that programmers could use. And they said, yes, and here's how to find the SDK. So it was amazing and awesome and encouraging and hotel rooms were insanely priced going down there but it was it was a great trip and it was a great opportunity to kind of see what's coming out in the coming years i also know that some people are gad gizmo walks and they love the gizmos and a lot of people are looking at getting the what are they the super high definition tvs the 4k and 8k etc and the 3d tvs and if you really look at them it turns out that they they haven't really standardized on anything, and so I really hesitate to get one. So I'm just going to throw that out there as well, having talked to a lot of people about a lot of this stuff. But, yeah, there were also, like, smart washers and smart dryers and smart fridges. and I mean, it was it was wild. But anyway, so I'm just going to pick CES. Um, I'm also going to pick Las Vegas. It's funny because the Las Vegas scene, as far as the gambling and smoking and strip shows, just really isn't my scene at all. But they do have some pretty fun concerts and tribute bands and magic shows and things like that to go see down there. So if you want to go down and uh, have a good time in Vegas, which is not in the traditional sense of having a good time in Vegas, you can definitely do that. And you can take your family and have a good time. Also, the casinos are really fun just to walk through because a lot of them are themed after particular cities or cultures. And so they have all kinds of displays, et cetera, et cetera. The Bellagio has the water show, which is fun to watch. And anyway, if you're ever going down to Las Vegas and you want to know what to see that's kind of more wholesome, I guess, feel free to shoot me an email and I'll t- tell you where the stuff is. But yeah, those are my picks. <laughs> that was the only recommendation I've ever heard of Las Vegas as a place for wholesome entertainment. But sure. It, it I, has I, it. Interesting. <laughs> so. It's got it all. Yeah, it does. Which is both fortunate and unfortunate. All right. Well, anything else that we need to bring up before we wrap up? Take that as a no. Well, then we'll wrap up. We'll catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.